You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We just pray and commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the truths of your word, Lord, and that it would change our lives, Lord, that we would thank you for being privileged to be called into your church, and we pray that we would truly act as a family uh, for your glory and the good of this community and beyond, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about unwrapping the gift of Jesus. Uh, Several weeks ago in our opening illustration, uh, Levin had talked about that little girl uh, who got the surprise of her life when her father, who had been deployed overseas for months and months, um, suddenly appeared on their front doorstep in a crudely wrapped Christmas gift. And he popped out, and we said that at that moment, uh, the little girl was filled with joy, Uh, as her hopes had been realized of her father being home. And with that embrace, she was surrounded by his love, and her little world was at peace. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about what true joy is, what true hope is, what true love is. And today, we're going to continue by talking about what true peace is. And what we'll see is that with all these things, you can only have these true, uh, the true joy and hope and love and peace when we unwrap the gift of our Savior, Jesus. Uh, in a world that is filled with so much uncertainty and turmoil, I would say uh, that we all are seeking peace. And I just want to read two verses today, and I'm just going to tell you, you can follow along or you can just listen uh, today. I've not provided any scripture references uh, like I normally do, because I really just want you to listen and take it all in uh, today. So I'm going to read just two verses, uh, Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, says this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There is a despairingly relentless cycle of political strife uh, and military conflict in the world in which we live. Hardly a day goes by, I'm sure there's not a day goes by, that there are not at least two nations that are warring against one another. In the U.S., you know that uh, we have just uh, come out of several months of a lot of turmoil, riots in the streets, uh, where businesses were burned down to the ground or they were looted. Um, Also, we have this constant suspicion uh, between uh, different people groups, between black and white, between rich and poor, between um, Muslim and Hindu, between uh, right-wing and left-wing leaning people. There is constant turmoil, and the list goes on and on. And there's tension. Even we know this, uh, those of you who are at work, you know that there's tension very often in your places of business between your colleagues. And then there's definitely tension within our homes as well. So the question is, could there ever be true peace? Could there ever be a time when we are not warring with each other between cultures or what have you? And also, why is there so much turmoil? Why is there so much division? Why are there so many, so much fighting in this world? 
Well, as you can imagine, coming from a pastor, uh, I would say that the answer is because of sin, and I would be right, because that is the answer. There is fighting and there is turmoil, there is division because of sin. Sin, at its very core, separates. That's what it does. Sin, as its very core, separates. Think about it for a second. A lie separates people. Even if one party does not even know that they're being lied to, there is a wall of separation that is erected between them and the other person. In addition to that, a hurtful word separates. A marital affair separates. Uh, pornography separates as well. A selfish act, a jealous spirit theft. Everything that involves sin separates. It separates us. Uh, it separates us from each other. The reason that there are divisions in this church and every other church in the world is because of sin. It's because we sin against each other. We sin against each other whether knowingly or unknowingly. And every time we do that, there are walls of separation erected between us. Sin separates us from each other, but more tragically, sin separates us ultimately from God. We sin so much that it's really not that big of a deal to us anymore. And because of the fact that God has not executed immediate judgment on us and wiped us out, we have the false idea that sin's not really that big of a deal to God either. And I just want to tell you that nothing, absolutely nothing, could be further from the truth. I want to take just a quick journey through the Bible to see how God has dealt with sin. We're not going to cover every instance of God, how, how God deals with sin, or we'd be here to the new year. Um, but I just want to give you some of the highlights, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, about how God dealt with with sin. The journey really begins in Genesis chapter 3 after God had created this perfect world and he created uh, man and woman and he placed them in this garden paradise. And he said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for the one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, man rebelled against God and they partook of that fruit. And that simple act of eating fruit from a forbidden tree immediately got them kicked out of the garden. They died spiritually and were separated from God. Immediately, that's what happened. As you read through the Bible, it doesn't take very long to see that the whole world becomes corrupt. And so God brings judgment upon the whole world in, uh, the, uh, in, with a flood. And not one person escapes except for Noah and his family, who God saved. As you move on through the Bible, uh, you would see that the, the sinful nation of Egypt enslaved the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. And because of that enslavement, because of that sin, God judged that nation. He judged the nation of Egypt. He absolutely decimated their land. And he killed the firstborn of every one of the Egyptians. Not one of them escaped the judgment of God. 
And then as, as God's people were wandering through the wilderness and they were on the edge of the promised land, able to take it simply by believing that God would give it into their hands, they failed to believe. They did not trust God. They rebelled against God. And God said, every single one of you 20 years of age and older will perish in the wilderness. And every one of them did, except for two, Caleb and Joshua, because they believed that God was actually able to do what he said that he would do. When God's people did eventually conquer the promised land and take possession of it, once again, they rebelled against him. And God brought judgment upon them again in the form of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom and the Babylonians in the southern kingdom. And no one, absolutely no one, escaped the judgment of God. They were all either taken into exile, killed, or left in the land with absolutely nothing at all. The point is clear. Sin causes us to war against God, and it causes God to war against us. And this is a battle that we cannot win. Okay, it is a battle that we cannot win. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 where he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that includes everyone because Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a result of that, Romans 5.8 says that we are enemies of God. We come into this world as enemies of God. We do not come into this world neutral towards God. Okay? It's not, someone cannot say, well, uh, you know, I'm not following God, but I don't hate him right? No, you're either with God or you are against God. There is no middle ground at all. You're either following Jesus or you are an enemy of his. And as enemies of God, it takes us right back to Romans chapter 1, where God's wrath is being poured out on us, and rightly so. Everyone comes into this world at war with God. And once again, this is a war that we will not when, in fact, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? And the implied answer is, nobody will be able to stand. So this is what I want you to remember. The next time that you sin and are tempted to think that it's not that big of a deal, go through the Old Testament. Go through the New Testament. Turn on the news and you will see how serious sin is every rape every murder every child that has been trafficked every marital affair every corrupt politician every abusive father or mother or husband or wife or boss is all a result of sin every episode of depression is a result of sin Every, every, every disease, every, every event of death is all a result of sin. And the ultimate separation of God in hell is a result of sin. Sin is serious. And this is the reality. The reality is this, that God is holy 
and we are not holy, and holiness must fight against unholiness. Therefore, God has to fight against us. Hence, all of the examples that we see of God fighting against sin in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has to deal with sin. Well, obviously, that is not the whole story, and thankfully so, right? Um, to see God as strictly a God of wrath and anger is not to see the true God. Uh, yes, God is a wrathful God. He hates sin, and the reason that he hates sin is because he knows what sin does. He knows what the results of sin are, and he absolutely hates it and fights against it. God will pour out his wrath on us, but he's also provided a way for us to avoid that wrath. In the Old Testament, this provision, this uh, came in the form of a promise of a little baby that was to be born, who would eventually become king and would somehow take away our sins and make us right with God. We see this in places like Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where right after our first parents had sinned and rebelled against God, God promised that he would give them victory over this enemy that had led them into sin. And he said this, he said to, the, to the, the serpent, Satan, who had led them into sin, he said, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And the bruising of the heel would refer to the crucifixion of Jesus where he would die for our sins. But in the process, what would he do? He would crush the head of the enemy, killing the enemy, defeating the enemy decisively. We also see this, this promise in passages like Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 where it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's called the Prince of Peace because he would bring peace between us and God. He would reconcile us to God. Well, how would he do this? Well, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6 tell us. It says this, speaking of this one to come, this Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This one spoken of would be pierced. He would be crushed. He would be chastised for us. And our sins, those things that separated us from God, would be laid on him. And he would cry out those horrible words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. The first readers of this a passage in Isaiah would have had no idea who they're talking about. We know him as the Prince of Peace, Jesus, our Savior. Well, that was the past. That was the anticipation of a Savior that would come. And after that initial promise in Genesis chapter 3, 15, thousands of years would pass 
before that Messiah would come on the scene. And then one unexpected day, night, as the shepherds are out on the hillside, these smelly, insignificant shepherds, suddenly the heavenly host appears and says, guess what? The long-awaited Prince of Peace is here. He is here. The message in Luke chapter 2 is this, fear not, this is what the angel said to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There was no more anticipation. The prince who would bring peace with God was here. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was and is God's greatest gift to us. He's a gift. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gifted his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the greatest Christmas gift ever because with it comes true joy, true hope, true love, and true peace. The world tries to offer us peace. They, ought to, they try to offer us peace through self-help books, through seminars, through school counselors, through uh, professional counselors, through talk and radio show hosts, uh, through a whole myriad of other things. But in the end, they can only offer a superficial, temporary peace with ourselves and with those around us. The peace that the world has to offer can never work because it's not from God. It can never work because it's not from God. It is a false sense of peace. It is not the real thing. I'm reminded of that uh, picture, uh, that famous picture that was taken on September 30th, 1938 of Neville Chamberlain, uh, who had just come out of that uh, meeting with Adolf Hitler, who was starting to declare war. And they said, you can't do this. And Hitler said, okay, you're right. I will stop. I will not do anything more. Let's sign a peace treaty. And Neville Chamberlain went back, stood on British soil, held that piece of paper in the air, and declared peace in our time. He was so excited about this peace, and yet so fooled into thinking that he actually had it. Six years later, with over 70 million dead worldwide, everyone knew that there was never any actual peace. There's a promise of peace, but none. The only one who can offer true peace is God himself. And the only one that we really need true peace with is God himself. We need peace with God. End the war with God and you end every other war. It's as simple as that. End the war with God and you end every other war. And this is why the Father sent his Son into the world so that we could have peace with him. And this gift of peace comes through his Son, Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. So the question is, how do we get this peace? How do we get this peace? How is God's deserved wrath towards us turned away so that we don't experience it? Well, the Bible is clear that we get this peace by simply believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus. Believing that he is who he said he is. 
believing that he did what he said he did, namely that he lived the life that you and I simply could not live. And then he went to a cross and was punished for every single sin that you and I ever have committed or ever will commit in the future. Believing that faith in Jesus is what brings us peace with God. It's as simple as that. Paul makes this abundantly clear. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, listen to this. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. That's a simple phrase, but man, that is so monumental. God is no longer at war with you. You are at peace with God. Why? Because I got my act together. No, because of your faith in Jesus. Therefore, I've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a wonderful reality to grasp that the creator and sustainer of this universe who was angry at us because of our rebellion is no longer angry because of what his son has done for us. We have peace with God. God is on our side, or rather we're now on God's side because of what his son Jesus has done. As wonderful as this reality is now, we know that it is not a complete peace. All right. Now by that I don't mean that there's some chance that God may still pour out his wrath on us who have believed in his son. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. There is no chance. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus according to Romans 8 uh, verse 1. But we know that in this life we continue to sin. We continue to rebel against God. And in those times that peace can be taken away from us. And it's taken away from us either by two sources, either by the Holy Spirit for our own good um, to say, hey, you're walking away from God right now. I'm not going to give you that peace, right? And so that, that, that uh, lack of peace is to draw us back to the Savior where we need that peace. Or it can be taken away from us by Satan who loves to come in and to condemn us and to defeat us. In fact, the Bible calls him in uh, Revelation chapter 12, the accuser of the brethren. And so Satan comes to us and he basically says something like this. You know that sin that you just committed? <laughs> That's just proof that you're not a Christian. That's just proof that you're not in the family of God. Oh, and by the way, God will no doubt pour out his wrath on you. You deserve it. That's what Satan comes and does. He is the accuser of the brethren. Well, God in his grace thankfully, has given us a temporary remedy for this when this peace is taken away from us. And it comes in the form of what is known as confession and repentance. When we sin, we confess those sins. We turn away from them. And so we need to constantly be, uh, constantly be exercising um, that confession of our sins and that repentance until Jesus finally comes back one day and our sinful bodies are conformed to his glorious body. And we no longer have any capacity to sin anymore. And at that point, we will have complete and total unending peace. Unending peace. There will be no more residual guilt. 
no more lingering anxiety regarding our relationship with God. We will be at complete peace with God and we will reign with Jesus forever and ever. Well, there's one more thing that I want to say uh, before we close uh, today. And that is that this peace with God ensures that you and I can have peace with one another as well. And this is what God desires. Okay, you have to get that. This is what God desires. The Bible is clear on this point. Um, we could go to several different passages to see this. We could go to Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about unity. We could go to Philippians chapter 4, where it talks about unity. We could go to James chapter 4. We could go to Jesus' high priestly prayer, which we refer to often in John chapter 17, where right before, the night before he's about to be crucified, he gets down and prays. And isn't that interesting to think that here Jesus is about to make peace with God for us He's about to open up that access to God again. And what does he pray that night before? He prays that we would have peace with one another as well. That we would be one. How important do you think that is when he's about to die and he's just saying, Father, make them one as we are one. Peace with each other is so important. And I'm going to tell you probably one of the most disheartening things as a parent uh, is when your children fight against one another. When they fight against one another, when they, when they, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's true. Um, can I get an amen, sister? All right. Um, when they're fighting, when they hate each other, because you're just thinking, you guys, you guys bear the same name, right? You, you eat at the same table. You, you sleep in the same house. You should be on the same page, and yet you're fighting against each other. And I'll have to say one of the most disheartening things about being a pastor is when I see the people in this church fighting against one another. When there's divisions, when something arises and, and we start to fight against each other and hate each other and slander each other and gossip about each other and refuse to talk to one another, withdraw from fellowship because of that. It's totally disheartening. We are one. We've all been chosen. We've all been forgiven. We've all been adopted into the family of God. That same complete forgiveness that was extended to you in Christ should be extended to everyone else in the church as well, by you. This is what Jesus prayed for in the Lord's Prayer when he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19 talk about this piece. And I love the illustration that he gives, that he talks about, well, it's not an illustration, it's a reality, uh, but he talks about these two groups which were completely opposed to each other. They were, uh, they were polar opposites in regards to their thinking, their religious practices, and their morality. And yet God took these two distinct irreconcilable groups and reconciled them and brought them together. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's the first group, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's the second group, the Jews, uh, which is made by the, uh, in the flesh by hands. So this is Jews and Gentiles. He's saying, you guys hated each other. You were completely different. And here's what he says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now 
in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You and I have been invited into the household of God. Because of this gift of Jesus, because of his great sacrifice, we have been made one. You are one with me. I am one with you. We who come from all different types of educational backgrounds, all types of socioeconomic backgrounds or political affiliations or family dynamics or whatever else it may be, we are all united in Christ to where there's no longer Jews or Greek. There's no longer ethnicities um, that divide us. There's no longer male nor female. There's no longer slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. For this reason alone, church, we should not be fighting against one another. We should be fighting against divisions. The sins that I have committed against you are real. But if you're tempted to hold those against me, remember that all of those sins have been taken away in Jesus. And the sins that you have committed against me are real as well. And if I am tempted to hold them against you, I need to remember that they have been taken away in Jesus as well. And how dare, how dare I refuse to extend forgiveness to someone who God has already extended forgiveness to? How dare you refuse to extend forgiveness to someone who God has already extended forgiveness to? Are you greater than God? Am I greater than God? If God has forgiven me and reconciled me to himself and made me one with him, how dare I fight against that in his church? God has given us peace with him and now we are to seek peace with each other as well. I'm going to be bold right now and say this, all right? Don't call yourself a follower of Jesus if you're not willing to seek peace with all of his people. Don't do it, okay? Because this is what he prayed for. If you're not willing to seek peace with everyone in his family, I'm not going to get into the exact interpretation of this right now. I know there's controversy surrounding this. But I want Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 to sit with you. Listen to what he says at the end of the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I'm going to ask you right now, right here, are you holding a grudge grudge against anyone in the family of God right now? 
Is there anyone that you're refusing to talk to because they've wronged you? Is there anyone that you're refusing to make contact with for something that they have done or something that you think that they've done? And I have to interject that, that word think because a lot of times it's in our mind. I cannot tell you how many times over the past uh, month, uh, just the past month, where uh, I've talked with people and, and they're, they're angry at me or I'm angry at them. And I, well, why are you angry? Because you did this. Nope, that's, that's not what I meant. Oh, it's not? No. Oh, goodness. What Satan does is he loves to take what people do and he loves to twist it. Oh, that's what they meant. And then what happens is he sets up a wall of division between us. And a lot of this stuff is just not real. It never really happened. But it's how we imagine it happens. But even if it is real, even if someone has really harmed you, like, and, and, it, and, and it was intentional and it's known, the command is to be at peace. We are commanded to be at peace with one another since God is gracious enough to extend peace to us with him, we are to extend that peace, that reconciliation to others as well. And here's the last thing I want to say. Isn't it amazing what God has done for us? Because of this, because of being adopted into his family, this is what I want to say. Let us truly act like we're in his family. Let us truly act like we are uh, his children. Let's reflect his character. And the best way to reflect the character of God is to spend a whole lot of time with him in his word and in prayer. Do you ever notice that the more that you hang around someone, the more that you start to take on their characteristics, you start to talk like them. I remember being in high school, uh, the people that you hang around with, that's who you start to talk like and to be like. You start to take on their characteristics. I remember when my daughter Jayla was about two years old and she would walk around the house and my wife's name is Kellen. She's like, Kella! And I'm like, oh gosh. She is reflecting the character of her father to his shame, right? She's starting to talk like her dad. And it was just a, a big illustration saying, hmm, how are you talking to your wife? You can't help but start to reflect the character. And here's what I want to say. When you reflect the character of God, it's all good. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And joy, hope, love, and peace are at the center of his character. And you will start to exude those things. So I encourage you to unwrap the gift of Jesus. Follow him. Receive all that he has to offer. Reflect his character for the glory of God and for the good of this church and this island and this world. We have to do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you for... The gift of your son, Jesus, is as plain as that. He is a gift to us. Um, you gave him to us because you love us. And I pray, God, I know that Satan is alive and well. I know that Satan loves to kill, steal, and destroy. And we just pray against that. We pray that he would not have a foothold. We pray that he would not be able to discourage us and, and, and cause divisions among us, Lord. And we pray that we would be one uh, because you have made us one with you and one with each other. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.